So it was nice to have that option to eat in my hotel rather than wondering if I'm going to have to get the bus every night. It was nice to know that I had that guaranteed meal like after dark as such. So I do like that factor of all-inclusive holidays. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Well... It has been a wee while since my last episode. There's been no particular or specific reason for this, so thank you for bearing with me in these precedented times. Things I'd like to blame include the inherent lethargy brought upon by the current heat wave here in Scotland. It's quite weird in that it's been over a month since I came back from Italy and Cyprus, and in that time, I think it's rained twice. It's currently dry, sunny, and temperatures are hitting around 27 to 28 Celsius, or around 81 Fahrenheit. For some of you, this may not sound like a lot. However... Firstly, we've never had a temperature above about 92 Fahrenheit in Scotland. And secondly, we don't have the infrastructure for this sort of thing. Brits like to point out that our houses aren't built to let the heat out in summer, but rather to keep the heat in in winter. Laura points out that they don't do this very well either. We also don't have aircon. Because why would we need aircon for the three days of the year where it's become important? To that, we say, hmm... Climate change might change that. Anyway, I've been taking advantage of the drier weather, though possibly despite the hotter weather, rather than, you know, as a result of it, to continue my aim to walk past as many railway stations in this part of Scotland as I can. I'm now in the realm of places out with the Glasgow urban area, so they all require a bit of an adventure to get to and around of themselves. Plus, it's making the actual routings I walk much more limited, And this is partly because many of the country roads often don't have pavements, so walking down them is very much taking my life into my own hands. And if there is an alternative route, it's a long-winded one along farm tracks and single-track lanes meandering their way through the farmland. It's not nearly as pretty as you imagine. In fact, looks a bit like England. That said, there are unexpected, everywhere is interesting points. One walk I was on a couple of weekends ago took me through the village of Dunlop, which was actually pretty cute with old-style cottages and buildings that made the place feel like it hadn't changed in 200 years. Another walk a week or two ago had me past the Carfin Grotto, a larger-than-you-might-expect Catholic shrine in the Mould of Lourdes, located in an otherwise identical suburb of the ex-industrial town of Motherwell. I've also been past country reservoirs, natural locks, down country cycle paths that had once been railways, through country parks, golf courses, wild woodland, and along rivers big and small. It's amazing what you find within a short train ride of Glasgow. Probably make a half-decent podcast episode. Hmm. Anyway, there's something related I need to say about that particular point. But now is not the time. Nothing has been confirmed. Regardless, despite my really long walks, which have been up to about 12 miles in distance and which I've been doing at pace, and before my injury I was walking at a shade faster than four miles an hour, and I seem to be back to around that ability, I'm still not running... 
Partly, this is because when I've dabbled, for example, you know, running across the road to avoid a car or fast jogging through the streets of Northern Motherwell to catch a train from Holytown Station that runs once an hour, because otherwise there's naff all to do in Holytown for an hour. And yes, that really is the name of the town. And no, Coffin Grotto isn't in it, though it's only a mile away. I've not felt entirely comfortable. And partly because I've not honestly pushed the point much, I guess. Uh, I've volunteered at Parkrun a couple of times, but lately, by the time I've got round to thinking about it, They've had a full rotor, which is brilliant, not just for parkrun, but also means get more flexibility with me Saturday mornings. Does, however, mean I'm slowly getting out of the loop and out of the practice. It's just something I need to be aware of, that's all. What else is going on in my life that you need to know about? Oh, my paid job, I guess. It involves working with Google Analytics. And for those of you who are website owners, and especially travel bloggers, you may be fully aware about the imminent sunsetting, uh, that's Google's phrasing, not mine, of the old version of Google Analytics and the sole implementation of GA4. By the time you hear this podcast, there's a fair chance that it might have happened. This is causing me, shall we say, issues. Because a lot of what I do in old GA doesn't seem to be available in GA4. And in any case, sense checking it is quite tricky, since several of the metrics have changed definition, and my figures don't seem to match between the two Googles anyway. Newport, we have a problem. But I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. Maybe. I mean, I like change, so long as there's a reason for it, and the change brings overall material benefits. Change is inevitable. Change is usually a good thing, and without change we'd be no more benefiting wider society than, you know, people living in villages like Woburn Sands and voting Tory. That may, or may not, have been a slight subtweet, though I don't know personally of anyone who fits in both categories. Now, if it had said Little Neston, I wonder if she's listening. Find out, I guess. I had a weekend in Manchester in the middle of May, which was badly timed as it was the same weekend as the Great Manchester Run, a half marathon that I might be tempted with one day. I did wonder why it was hard booking a hotel. Anyway, I don't have much to say about that weekend, save on the Saturday night I ended up in a rock nightclub, unexpectedly, because Laura's friend led me astray. Suffice to say it was more my scene than her scene, though she did stop a bouncer trying to throw me out because they'd mistaken my dyspraxia for incoherent, intoxicated dancing. Just to be clear, I was absolutely the most drunk I'd ever had in my life. But that's not the point. I was so tipsy, in fact, that I'd bought a doner kebab for like eight quid and only managed to eat half of it. I don't know which of those two facts is more damning, to be honest. Anyway, speaking of alcohol, be meaning to do this pod for a couple of weeks, but haven't. It's about all-inclusive resorts, where lots of alcohol was drunk, but oddly, not as much as you might imagine. It certainly didn't feel like it, I'm not sure I can explain why. Maybe I'll come to a realisation as I write this episode. So, I am the Barefoot Backpacker. My tendency is to go backpacking around lesser visited spots around the world, independently, usually solo, staying in hostels, Airbnbs and premier inns. I tend to move around from place to place a lot rather than spending too long in the same destination, and I generally book my onward journeys on the fly rather than having things booked in advance. The idea of being in a place for several days and not need to worry about things like food or travel is not what I'm used to. I seek out craft beer bars and street food, and generally steer clear of other Brits travelling abroad for sun, sea, sand, sangria and sex. And of course, my only reference point for all-inclusive holidays has tended to be what I've seen on TV and in the media. In short, I'm the least likely person to end up in an all-inclusive resort on the beaches of Cyprus for four nights. However, life is often about getting out of your comfort zone. And in a sense, given that this sort of trip isn't really what you'd expect from someone like me, doing it was exactly the point. Full disclosure, 
it was a blogger press trip gifted by Jet2 Holidays, which, given the above, and given how well you all know me, probably, in truth, raises more questions than it gives answers. So, going back to the trip I had to Czechia last year, that was organised by Traverse, who obviously have their hand in many pies. And while I was there, I had word that Jet2, a company noted for package holidays more than backpacking trips, were on the lookout for travel bloggers, people like me, but generally much more established, to go away on trips of theirs in return for blogging about them. They pay for cheap advertising, the blogger gets a free trip in return for a bit of work. It's a win-win situation, really. Anyway, turns out I seem to be established enough for them to be interested in me. Who knew? Jet2 fly to a quite a number of destinations in and around Europe, so in principle I had quite a lot of flexibility when I was choosing things. In practice, however, I was limited by time and availability. In addition, these trips tend to be offered to two people, the travel blogger themselves and a plus one. And given my personal life, I don't have a plus one, clearly. And given I tend to travel alone anyway, just because it's so very hard to find someone that we're both willing to put up with each other for any length of time, for, well any reason. My list of willing plus ones is quite small. Hello. And Laura has a job and limited holiday time because she books things several geological ages in advance. Another aspect is that we both wanted to use the opportunity to visit a country we neither of us had ever been to. And the one country that fitted all the available options was Cyprus. Jet2 gave me a list of possible hotels and Laura chose the one she felt best suited her requirements. I say her requirements because, quite frankly, I didn't have any and everything started to blend into one the more I looked at all of the options. The resort Laura plumped for was called the St George Hotel and Spa. Partly because it having the and spa in the title, partly because it was listed as an adults-only resort, and partly for its location relatively near the historical sites of ancient Paphos. Note that in the world of resorts, adults-only simply means no children. It does not mean it's a haven for swingers, sadly for full-swap radio listeners. I mean, not officially. I have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. We didn't hear of anything, though. Not that we asked, obviously. All it meant that we were surrounded by mostly Gen X and Boomer adult couples and the occasional 30-something pre-wedding party. We slightly stood out, but I'll talk about that at the end of the pod. I can't comment on the vibe of family-friendly all-inclusive resorts, but I know they exist. I guess one of the beauties of such a holiday is the wide variation of styles available. In Paphos, we had a slightly older crowd. No doubt had we chosen to stay in a resort near Ayanapa we'd have been surrounded more by party-focused holidaymakers. What it did mean is that it never felt loud. We weren't disturbed by parties at 2am or anything like that. So, for this pod, I asked around for contributions from others about all-inclusive resorts and whether you know any of my tweets had been to them. And one of the things I wondered was when the first time people went to them was and how they felt about it. Amanda Kendall from the Thoughtful Travel podcast went to her first and only all-inclusive, seemingly by accident. So I have only ever stayed in an all-inclusive kind of resort one time in my life and it wasn't really intentional. I was had just moved to Germany and we were told that after, I don't know, just a couple of weeks, we would have two weeks with no work uh, because it was the summer season and the school we'd come to work in was closed, closing down for two weeks. So it seemed a shame to stay in Germany and we had a look uh, to see where we could get to and obviously we'd left it to the last minute, unintentionally. Uh, but basically our option, the only affordable option we could find was to fly to Egypt, uh, to Haggadah uh, on the Red Sea and stay in a resort. So it was like a package with a resort, the flights and a resort stay. Ruth Millington, who hosts the Extreme Holidays podcast, on which I was a recent guest talking about my hike across Great Britain, 
gave me a contribution all about a recent resort trip she'd had to Turkey and told me reasons why, despite this type of holiday not being anywhere near her preferred style of trip either, she chose to book one this year. In fact, she was away pretty much exactly the same time we were, and just over the water too. I'm usually very last minute and spontaneous. For example, I rarely ever book the first night's accommodation when I arrive in the place. So it felt very strange booking an entire two weeks in advance. And then there was also the fear that because it's more expensive than just a bed and breakfast, I could be wasting a huge amount of money which didn't live up to the blurb and the photos on the holiday company booking site. So why did I book an all-inclusive to Turkey this May? Well, I was really tired and stressed. I wanted to speak to no one. I wanted things to be easy. I wanted everything in one place. That means I could unpack and not have to worry about moving on every few days to another hotel or destination. I wanted everything to be included so I didn't have to worry about my budget. Turkey is suffering from hyperinflation, so I didn't know if I would have ended up spending more by not going all-inclusive. It was a five-star all-inclusive hotel that I chose to go to. The photo showed it had a great pool, a lovely beach area and... Importantly for me, it was quiet. It was also in May, between the English bank holidays, and few guests would be there. All the flights and transfers were included in the trip, so it was easy to get there and very convenient, so it took away any stress of getting to the hotel in the first place. I didn't have a great deal of expectations. The only thing I really expected was the food to be buffy-style, which always disappoints me, regardless of how good or bad the food is. As you probably can tell, I'm not a big fan of buffets. We'll come back to Ruth's buffet experiences later. But for now, finally, we have Kylie from the Between England and Everywhere blog, who said that while her first all-inclusive was not really her choice, she does have reasons for continuing to go on to them. So my first all-inclusive holiday was when I was 11 years old, so I don't really remember it too well. I just remember that we could eat ice cream whenever we wanted to because it was already paid for, so in theory it was free. And even now, though, I do still like to go on the odd all-inclusive, especially in that time when travel started opening back up, like in 2020. I would go on a package holiday, which included the flight and the hotel and then food and drink just because there was still a lot of uncertainty as to some businesses were shut some had capacity limits and I just found it was easier to kind of travel that way for a little bit. There's a strong vibe coming out here that people like all-inclusive resorts because it makes vacationing easier so I guess we'll see over this poll if that's true or not. One thing that wasn't easy was the start of my trip. Getting to Cyprus was an adventure so none of it was Jet 2's fault. Indeed, that side of it went without a hitch. I'd argue that having a dedicated all-in-one service made things simple and quite personable, and that's something I'm not used to having. Check-in at Stansted felt quick and efficient, with friendly and knowledgeable staff. Laura's boarding passes always require additional admin due to her passport status, but they seemed pretty clued up on what she needed. And the flights themselves were pretty smooth, which, granted, is not something Jet 2 have any control over. But we did feel quite looked after on them, with attentive crew and a decent selection of snacks. On the way out, I had a middle seat. Laura always needs the window, for anxiety reasons. And at 1m90, I wasn't looking forward to four hours crammed into a small place. But in the event, I had a surprisingly large amount of legroom, so didn't feel at all restricted. On the way back, I sat in the aisle, and the middle seat between us was free, so that was kind of the best of both worlds. 
The only thing lacking on the flight was the pocket in the seat in front, but this seems to be the way of things these days, alas. We were also bemused by the size of the drinks holder, which seemed to fit no known size of bottle, cup or mug. Except the one sold on the Jet 2 flight itself. Hmm. They've been taking tips from Apple. The transfers in Cyprus were easy too, and required no admin or angst from us. On arrival at Paphos Airport, there was a Jet 2 stall with staff around who took our names and quickly directed us to our assigned coach that would whisk us to our resort. Similarly, on our return, we had both a text message and an email telling us when our transfer back would likely pick us up from the resort and where to wait for it. Paphos has a number of resorts and our transfer coach stopped at several of them, dropping other passengers off before reaching ours, so the actual journey time was longer than you might have expected, given that we were near the end of the line, as it were. But on the plus side, it didn't require any effort or expenditure from us, and everything was taken care of. Additionally, we were able to check in to our flight home at the resort itself on the morning of departure. Our flight wasn't until around 6pm, but we were able to check in around 10 in the morning, This meant both we had almost a full day at the resort without having heavy bags, and we didn't have to worry about getting to the airport several hours in advance, so we had more time to enjoy it. I took the opportunity to have my back waxed, but that's a whole other story we'll come on to later. Anyway, our transfer picked us up about 3.30, and went around the same group at the other resorts before getting to the airport, but it was still an easy ride. Laura found it really unusual that all-inclusive holidays like this exist. The idea of a package holiday that incorporates flights and accommodation seems to be weird to American culture, and she didn't realise that a flight to a Jet 2 resort with Jet 2 holidays would be operated by a Jet 2 airline and Jet 2 staff on board and at either end. So, I'd open this section with a suggestion of hassle. It wasn't a huge amount of hassle, but it was slightly frustrating. I'd booked a hotel the night before in Redbridge, specifically a two-minute stagger from Redbridge Tube Station. This was great on the Friday, as I was able to go there, dump my bag, then go back into the centre of London to meet up with Laura and one of her work colleagues for a couple of drinks. Which, honestly, turned into a couple more drinks, and then a couple more. Not the ideal preparation for an early start, but I figured not too early since Redbridge is 21 minutes from Liverpool Street Station where the Stansted Express goes from, so it's an easy route. But no. Turns out they were doing planned engineering works on the line, and there were no tubes scheduled on the Saturday or the Sunday. And information about rail replacement services was confusing and contradictory, as well as incomplete. Information about alternative routing was also somewhat oblique. And at that time in the morning, and we're talking like 7am on a Saturday, even regular London buses aren't that frequent. Anyway, I had to get up much earlier than anticipated, which is really great after a night in a pub. My 21-minute journey took over just about an hour, involving a bus into Ilford and my first experience of the Elizabeth Line. And then a realisation that if you're the wrong end of the train, getting off at Liverpool Street puts you out nearer to Moorgate. And I thought Bank Monument Tube Station was a large messy hassle. Anyway, I got to the station in good time, albeit noticeably grumpy, which Laura picked up on. I apologise for my not being a morning person, leading to bad attitudes. Bloody TFL. Now, I must say something important. Um, We were on a blogger press trip, as I've already mentioned, and as part of that, we were also on the highest level of tariff, the all-inclusive plus. So, bit of clarification, Jet2 holidays offer a couple of different tariff levels, but in simple terms, on all-inclusive, the price you pay includes flights, transfers at the destination, hotel costs, and most food and soft drinks. You get free use of the pools and associated facilities, and at that level, all you'd need to pay for would be alcoholic drinks and any of the spa treatments offered by third parties on site. We'll come back to that later, because we did. The all-inclusive plus, the one we were on, includes unlimited alcoholic drinks, as well as, in this resort at least, one meal a week from the specialist on-site restaurants. 
That is to say, there were several specialist restaurants and we had the option to have one meal from each of them in a week, not one meal from only one of them. Sometimes the vagueness of the English language needs clarification. Also, some very fancy bespoke cocktails weren't included, even on the plus package, but the inclusive selection is wide enough for that not to be an issue, unless you're really wanting to push the boat out. The wristband you get given on arrival is colour-coded, so it's easy for the staff to see what package you're on and what you're entitled to. And this meant we spent a large amount of time drinking standard cocktails. Because why not? There's not much in the way of local craft beer, but that's to be expected, and I'm noting more a me issue than you know, for being a beer snob than anything about, bad about the package or resort. Whereas Laura's go-to drink when she visits Scotland is Tenant's Lager. Make of that what you will. Disclaimer, I quite like Bookfast, a caffeinated fortified wine very popular with a certain selection of Glaswegian culture and society and which makes Tenant's Lager feel like champagne. Anyway. With regard to food, the resort we were at had several restaurants open at various times of the day, a couple of them were open all day and required no reservations. They generally operated as a buffet-style restaurant with the option to changing over the course of the day, so breakfast, lunch and evening meals all being catered for differently. As the resort was in Cyprus, much of the available food was Eastern Mediterranean with ample amounts of halloumi, lamb, dolmades, stuffed vine leaves and the like. However, many major cuisines were represented. In general, the food at the buffet was actually really, really good, much better than we'd expect from buffet-style restaurants in hotels back in the UK. Now, I mentioned earlier about the specialist restaurants. At the resort we were at, these included Greek, Oriental and an American-style one. These mainly operated in the evenings and by reservation only. We went to two of them, and I think they'd definitely be worth paying for. The Oriental restaurant vibed like a standard restaurant with an a la carte menu, while the Greek restaurant, outdoors, lovely in the fading spring sunshine, was a set menu where they just kept coming over to the table and dropping more food off. It was so good, but so much even we couldn't eat it all. The reservation system for these restaurants was online and we had some trouble booking on our phones, but that might have been because we were trying to do it from a McDonald's about five kilometres away in Paphos town. But when we returned to the resort, we asked the reception desk and they took us through it on one of the large touchscreen information boards in the resort and everything was fine. Another plus for helpful staff. For snacks and quick food, the resort had a couple of places you could get sandwiches, cakes, ice creams, etc. One was outside near the beach and pool, another served as a cocktail bar where you could get divine chocolate cake and pastries. While I'm not the best person to ask about allergies or religious dietary requirements, because, let's be honest, I'll put anything into my mouth, famously so, but you don't need to know about that. Although, again, for Full Swap Radio listeners, absolutely yes and absolutely no, in that order. What I will say is that as many of the restaurants work on a buffet system and everything is labelled with what it is, for the most part it's easy to play safe and say, you know, stick to the vegetarian food, for example. We were in Cyprus, this wasn't a problem. I didn't notice anything specifically labelled as halal or kosher or gluten-free or containing allergens, but what I will say is the staff were consistently very friendly and attentive, so I would be confident enough to say if you asked them, they'd be very happy to guide you. Certainly that would be the case in the specialist restaurants with specific menus where things like that would be listed specifically. Another tag, in case you're wondering, it's pretty easy to get something to eat and drink most times of the day. The restaurants open at various times of the day depending on the food they offer, but for example the buffet breakfast runs from 7 in the morning till 10 in the morning. The specialist restaurants you need to pre-book open at 7, all of the restaurants close at 10 and the patisserie for cakes and snacks closes at midnight. While our resort was pretty awesome for buffet food, I must mention this isn't always the case. Ruth mentioned a situation in her resort which left her feeling a little worse than she should. 
if you've got a dodgy stomach, listen away now. The worst thing, though, about my stay was getting food poisoning a few days after arriving. I suspect it was from an omelette that they cooked in front of me for breakfast. When I ate it, something didn't taste quite right. And lo and behold, about six hours later, I started feeling very stressed. Then my stomach started playing up and I had to lie down in my room. I had to do that actually for five days. I couldn't eat and for most of the time I was curled up in my bed in my hotel room with stomach cramps or rushing to the toilet. It was annoying that I had wasted so much money on an all-inclusive and then couldn't even eat the food. But if I'm honest, the most disturbing part of it all was having left the do not disturb sign on my bedroom door and realising that if I died there and then, no one would find me for days. It didn't occur to anyone working there that I was missing in action for five days and to come and check on me. When I normally travel, I go to small hotels. They always know where you are and will check upon you. This simply didn't happen in this very large all-inclusive resorts and I suspect it's not the only one. Clearly, she didn't travel with Jet 2 Holidays. I'd love to insert an ad here, but that would indicate I really have sold out. Anyway, back to our resort, where we didn't even get ill from the alcohol. Uh, the bars open at various times in the morning between about 9 and 10.30am. The pool bars tend to close early evening, but the inside bars stay up until late. The cocktail bar closes at 1. It means you're unlikely to be kept awake by party animals, as we said earlier. Obviously, all the restaurants serve drinks, which, for both soft and alcoholic, wine and beer, were available on tap dispenser system like you'd find in a fast food restaurant. Yes, this means you could have self-serve wine with your breakfast. People did. We did not. There were a number of dedicated bars to not just the ones mentioned earlier, whose seating drifted out onto the patio, but also a proper bar with a piano and occasional live performances with good high views of the sunsets. There was also two pool bars, one of which you could actually swim up to and sit on stools at, the decadence of which had been on Laura's bucket list for quite some time. Note for non-swimmers, it was possible both to walk into the water and to sit poolside, or just sit landside, though the latter meant you lose something of the experience. Now, this opens the question of, do I need to be able to swim to enjoy an all-inclusive resort? As a non-swimmer, famously so, my answer is a solid no. Although the resort we were in had two outdoor pools, an indoor pool at the spa, and was next to the sea, there was plenty to do out with the water. Indeed, on our visit, the pools were relatively quiet. The majority of people were staying were spending their time either in the bars or lounging on the large areas reserved deck chairs. Both the outdoor pools are freshwater ones and not artificially heated. This makes them cooler than you might expect on a hot early May day. But you soon get used to it. The indoor spa pool is heated, but only over the winter period. Now, the bar pool you could swim up to not only had water access via steps and was in the shallow end, it also had a bar landside anyway, as I said, but it wasn't the best bar in the resort. While it might have ticked off an item in Laura's nebulous bucket list, we only went to it once. But we did take lots of pictures. Even if I do look like an old trans woman in them. What? I ought to briefly mention the room we were in. Now, we had a room on the lowest floor of accommodation. There were at least three. We had a twin room, obviously, and it was a good size, plenty of space for us to not feel cramped and ample room for the luggage. There was a large bathroom complete with shower. 
Our only downside was at first the shower flooded the bathroom, but hotel facilities sorted that out without too much of a fuss. Apparently it's a known design fault, but that's beyond the scope of this pod. Suffice to say, my house in Kirkby and Ashfield was built in 1898. My tenement block in Glasgow dates from around 1907. The Victorians and Edwardians knew how to build buildings. Modern architects care less about this sort of thing. Indeed, my stepcousin works in mortgages in Dubai and laughs silently to herself every time she sells a 30-year mortgage for a new build, of which Dubai has a lot. But back to the resort. The room also has a sizeable balcony with table and chairs and provided a good spot to sit in with a bottle of wine and watch the sun go down over the sea. All would have done if we went in one of the bars doing that exact same thing. The beds were very comfortable and the rooms are equipped with aircon, which would be very useful in the height of summer, else you have to sleep with the patio doors open and then risk getting bitten to death by the mosquitoes that lurk in this part of the world. Listener, we are not very good at using hotel aircon systems. Look, there were no instructions, right? Two of the questions I was asked by my friend V were, can you leave the resort and did you feel pressured up by upselling of excursions? The first is easy to answer. Yes, the door is right there. This isn't a remake of The Prisoner. There isn't a huge ball bouncing down the beach stopping you. And in any case, the door is on the opposite side of the geography. Sometimes I hate metaphor. It must be said, though, St George's Resort itself is a little way out of town. It's about six kilometres from Paphos Seafront. The road down has a wide demarcated area you can walk along, but regular buses do exist. At the time of writing, they only accepted cash, but hopefully this will change soon. Halfway down the road is one of the important historical sites, the Tomb of the Kings, so you're going to head that way anyway. At a junction with the main road just outside the resort is a mini-mart that sells pretty much anything except the Sun newspaper. Across the road from it is a small shopping centre, including a pharmacy, an opticians and a cafe. As to the other question, I wonder if my friend V has been watching too many sitcoms from 20 years ago. There were no trips to local markets run by friends of the resort, nor anything similar. There were a couple of Jet 2 reps on site, but they were there purely to ensure that we had no admin or logistical issues, and that the staff were there to run the resort, not get involved in ephemera. That's not to say there weren't excursions available. On arrival, we were given a whole booklet's worth of information, including the list of available trips, which was quite extensive. They covered a whole world of Cypriot adventures, from simple things like daily trips to Paphos Zoo and the water park, to cultural and heritage trips around the island, and jeep safaris and sunset cruises. Most of these excursions were full-day experiences, and would be a nice way to get out of the sun lounger and explore the region. We chose not to, because we're both independent travellers at heart, and anyway, it's likely we'll be back in Cyprus soon to explore at our own pace. On this trip, we just wanted to make the most of the resort, as that in itself was a new experience for us, especially as we were only there for four nights. Maybe if we'd have been there for a week, things may have been different. One of the questions often raised about all-inclusive resorts, though, is around the economic effect it has on the local area. Kylie makes this point here. There is also kind of an image, I think, within travellers where they look at all-inclusives as that you're the bad person because a lot of travellers, they go to an all-inclusive and they don't leave the resort. So then they're not really spending money within like the community. But I find I do make a conscious effort to actually go out and still spend in the community and, you know, just spend the time out and about. Ruth agrees. I've never been into big hotels and certainly never all-inclusive resorts they feel false and cut off from the rest of the country you're visiting. You're basically in a bubble and there's no need to venture beyond the premises of the hotel. I miss eating at local restaurants and talking to the locals about their lives. 
And particularly during this period, there was the Turkish elections going on and it would have been fascinating to get a greater insight. I also as well think it's really important that when you go to places, is to share your money amongst the local economy. Staying in an all-inclusive, it often just goes to the hotel and often these are big chains. So when you stay in a smaller hotel, you spread your money out. You'll go out and have lunch somewhere and dinner maybe have a Turkish bath locally, you may go for drinks locally, you may use different travel agencies. I obviously can't vouch for all resort complexes around the world. And for example, one thing that springs to mind is parts of the Caribbean, like Dominican Republic and Haiti, where there always feels like there'd be more pressure to stay within the resort complex, quote, for your own safety, unquote. Obviously, this kind of practice has detrimental effects on not just the local economy, but also on people's perceptions of those countries and those places. Part of this, though, may be self-selecting. Amanda has an observation from her trip to Egypt suggesting that one of the reasons resorts have a reputation for being insular is because people who visit them prefer it that way and actively don't leave it even if they could. Uh, now, the funny part about that uh, resort was there was a shuttle bus to the nearest town, like the nearest proper real town. I think it was 15 or 20 minutes away, not too far. Uh, and during our five-day stay, one, one day of which we went um, to uh, Luxor, so that was already one day gone. Um, so we went twice uh, on this shuttle bus to the nearest town. There wasn't tons to do there. Like, it wasn't a touristy town. But, I mean, that was the point, I think. We could wander around, um, you know, have a meal. And, you know, I got chatting to some local people, met this really lovely guy working in a souvenir shop who we, we kept in touch on by email for um, for quite a few years, actually. I often wonder what happened to him. Uh, we lost contact and um, I guess he changed his email address. But um, on this shuttle bus, there was nearly nobody else. So I don't know how many people were staying at the resort. Hundreds, obviously, at least hundreds. And I think every time on the shuttle bus, whichever direction, there was maybe one or two other people and sometimes just us. So uh, obviously that was not a popular outing to go to the nearest town, I guess, most of the people in the all-inclusive resort wanted to stay in the all-inclusive resort, and that was the whole point of their holiday. And I guess, like, you know, I kind of try and understand that people just want to have a purely relaxing time, but I don't know. There's all this, like, Egypt was out there. Um, go and have a look. That's kind of how I feel. Uh, but also the all-inclusive nature just, you know, removed a lot of choice and a lot of different options from, you know, especially, you know, meals and stuff, because, you know, you kind of feel like well, we've paid for it already. So, you know, might as well make use of it. We had a day wandering the historical sites of old Paphos, then along the waterfront and finally through the suburbs back to the resort, in part because we were looking for a pedicurist and a hair salon, for reasons I'll come on to in a minute. We failed because who knew everything closed on a bank holiday in Cyprus. We only spent one day outside simply because the resort was six kilometres from the town centre and it was pretty hot and there were otherwise wasn't much left we didn't see, so didn't feel the need to. I do hope that doesn't make us stereotypes. Now, of course, resort holidays are more than just alcohol, food and sunbathing. And while it might be very tempting on an all-inclusive holiday to do just that, after all, all-inclusive, clues in the name, that would be a very easy way out that doesn't push any of the buttons. There were several other entertainments available. In the daytimes, there was fitness and sporting activities, including... Daily yoga. We did not do this. A list of them is posted for the week outside spa reception. In the evenings, a couple of the bars had events including live music and allegedly karaoke. We did not do that either. 
In fact, I didn't even notice it happening. We were too busy sipping sundowners on the patio. But the resort we stayed in, say, was called the St George Hotel and Spa. No, the last two words. Felt remiss to be spending four days in a resort and not visit the spa. You know, it's in the name. And I wouldn't be a travel podcaster worth my brutal salt and lime beer. Or even brewery, pools and Czechia, if I didn't take advantage of that fact. Now, as you hopefully know, I've only ever been to a spa once before, and that was a specialist beer spa in rural Czechia as part of a brewery trip, which you would have heard about on a previous episode. And if you haven't, go do it at the end of this episode. It was an interesting experience, similar to this, but also different. For a start, this time I had less beer. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Anyway, the spa itself had a few different parts. It took much of the basement level of the resort, under a couple of the restaurants, bars and the patio, with a door to the outside pools and the beach. The multi-gym was just outside the spa's reception. We didn't visit the multi-gym. Well, I didn't, and Laura didn't tell me she did. I like knowing that multi-gyms exist, but I'm far too self-conscious to use one in public and not knowledgeable enough about what I'm doing to make effective use of one in private. The reception area of the spa was quite large. Along one wall was a myriad of beauty, skincare and similar products that you could buy. The majority of these were the same products used in the beauty and therapy treatments you could book. We'll come on to these later, so they're an important part of the spa's remit. Well, just be aware, despite being on all-inclusive tariff, although the general spa offerings were, the treatments and self-care packages themselves were not. The spa reception was also where you could hire towels. In principle, the process is, at resort check-in, you get given a card with your room number on it that you can hand over to spa reception in exchange for a towel. Or two towels, in fact. You then keep those for use in the spa, or for the lectures outside, or for drying off after using any of the myriad of pools. And when they're dirty, damp or used, you take them back to spa reception and exchange them for new, clean towels. At the end of your stay, you hand over your last towel and you get your card back. I have no idea why it's done this way. And we broke the system at least twice, but nothing bad happened. So make of that what you will. Anyway, with regards to the spa facilities themselves, beyond the reception was a large spa pool, a calming way to swim away from the bars and sunseekers in the pools outside. In winter, this pool is heated. Alternatively, you could just relax on the recliners around the edge and sit in the cool quiet. Although, right next to the busy pools of the outdoor space, it feels a world away. Beyond the spa pool were the treatment rooms, which also included a small room with what can be best be described as rocking beds. You half sat, half lay on them, and they rocked up and down. A couple of them were heated. It was where you went when you were waiting for a treatment, or directly used as part of one of the treatment packages. Behind the reception desk were the changing rooms. The jacuzzi hot tub, the sauna, and the steam room. The latter required you to tell the reception desk you wanted to use it, and they'd turn it on. This is presumably because it puts out a lot of heat and energy. The men's changing room had quite a lot of lockable lockers, so it'd be rare for there to be no room for you. I can't comment on the women's changing rooms. There were also two shower cubicles here, complete with all-purpose soap. This is very useful when you find the shower cubicle in your bathroom has a tendency to flood. As for the facilities themselves, well, let's start with the hot tub, because I did. I had a couple of teething troubles, including sitting on the step rather than the bench below, and not being able to find the let's make this rumble button. But once I'd got that figured out, it was a nice place to sit and muse. Pushing the button activates the jets of water for several minutes. Longer than I'd expected, in truth. The pool itself was big enough for at least four people, and when me and Laura were in it for the first time, two other ladies joined us for a few minutes while they waited for their coach back to the airport. They were not size zero, shall we say, but it didn't feel cramped at all. The only downside of the hot tub was its location. 
It was just off the passageway that led from the reception desk. Even the men's changing rooms lay beyond it. I'd imagine in busy periods there'd be a constant stream of people walking past you as you chilled in the tub, which some people might have a problem with. The sauna felt quite traditional, in the sense of how I always imagined saunas to be. There was a fire heater thing on the wall and two levels of wooden seating. I'm guessing the technique is to spend some time at the lower level, some time at the higher level, but I have no idea. This is absolutely not my scene. On the wall near the fire was an hourglass measured in blocks of five minutes. I assumed the idea was to flip it over when you got in and leave when the sand ran out. Doesn't sound like a long time, but the sauna did get pretty hot, so I don't know how much time you could realistically spend in there. I did it anyways. The steam room, however, that gave much more detailed instructions. Indeed, on the wall outside were a series of notes about it, mostly warnings about who should use it, for how long and what to do afterwards. In a nutshell, you're supposed to spend around six minutes inside and certainly no more than ten. You're supposed to then go and cool down, either in the pool or in the shower, rest a bit to get your temperature back to normal. Only then should you go back into the steam room for a second go. It also said that for most people, two cycles is enough. And you also shouldn't go in if you're dehydrated, pregnant or under the influence of alcohol. I read all of this and I thought, I've just been in the sauna, can't be that much different, surely. My dear listeners, my first try, I lasted about three minutes. Rather than being wood-laden, the steam room was tiled, a bit like a swimming pool. Around the sides was a bench-like structure moulded onto the floor that you could sit on. This was fine for the first couple of minutes as the heat builds up and you think, oh, this isn't too bad. Then two things happen. Firstly, the room fills with steam. Which sounds pretty obvious, but it's much more than you imagine. It becomes difficult to see anything and finding either the bench or the door out becomes quite a task. Secondly, the steam seems to come from inlets below the seating, so your legs start to burn. Standing up just means you feel slightly faint from the heat. There's also no timepiece in the room to know how long you've been in there, so it's quite disorienting. I resorted to counting just to make sure I didn't oversteam myself. Remember too, by its very nature, the steam room makes you and everything you're carrying very damp and hot. The instructions specifically state to remove jewellery and not to take electronics inside. You will get damp. You will need a replacement towel from reception to dry off afterwards. Thus how you actually time six minutes is anyone's guess, short of taking in a small analogue wall clock. But even then, batteries. You wouldn't be able to see it anyway. You probably couldn't have even seen the Big Ben Tower clock face. Don't let yourself think this was a bad experience, though. I disregarded the health and safety information and had three sessions in the room, although only once that I managed to last the minimum suggested six minutes. I used both the spa pool and the hot tub to cool down. When a hot tub feels chilly, you can gauge how hot the steam room was. I don't honestly know if any of this did me any good, but I was definitely reminded of how the ancient Romans did bathhouses and how Turkish baths worked, though I've never been to one of those either. I'm certainly not averse to trying them again, but I would be more keen to know if I was doing it right, you know? Also remember I didn't really know what I was doing, nor what benefits it was going to bring, so I'd probably want to go in next time with more of a plan than, oh, I'll just do it in the steam room again because it's there. I'd also say this bit it helps if you can swim. The spa pool is nice to relax in, but if all you're doing is walking around the shallow end, it feels quite embarrassing. When we were planning this trip, Laura did casually suggest it might be a good place to do a second attempt to teach me how to swim. Well, come as no surprise to any of you that nothing more was said about this. The spa also offered beauty treatments, which, as I've said, were not included in the all-inclusive package. The available treatment list was quite long. There was, in fact, a whole brochure listing them. They included ten different types of facial treatments, a couple of body polishes and body wraps, ten various forms of massage, manicures and pedicures, hair waxing and removal, up to and including pretty much a full body session, 
eyebrow makeovers, and a couple of hydrotherapy treatments. These could be chosen separately or made up into a package. One of the packages was a romantic treatment for two, which included hydrotherapy, a steam and mud cleansing ritual, razul, and a full body massage. We did not do that, obviously. Though I was in reception when a young, I'd say early 20s, couple did indeed choose that option. Bless their romantic hearts. One thing to note is that not all of the treatments were necessarily available all the time. Like, we'd wanted a pedicure, but the person who was trained to give them was off work the week of our visit. Also, you needed to book at least a day in advance for the treatments, and in fact in busier times it might be advisable booking more than that, possibly if you can, before you arrive. Out of all the treatments offered, the only one I went for in the end was a back wax. It's something that I'd been contemplating for a while anyway, but never had the wherewithal to do. But here I was, in a resort, with time and opportunity right there, so I went for it. I wasn't sure what to expect, given that I've absolutely never had it done before. I'd been pre-warned by Laura that it would probably hurt, and as you can imagine, I have a lot of hair back there. Thick hair. It's a hard place to shave or even trim on your own. Yes, I have tried. In total, the treatment took just over an hour, though I had a bit of waiting around on the rocking recliners at the start. It was kind of a weird feeling. I was never in pain, but it was more annoying than being tickled with a pinwheel. Don't ask me how I know that. I was lying face down on a bench with a hole for my face to rest in, so I couldn't see what was going on, only feel it. The lady who worked on me, Lily, did it in stages, rather than doing the whole of my back at once, so each section went through the same process. Firstly, she prepared part of the skin with a kind of poultice. This is the bit that took the longest. Once it had settled in and gripped on, then she applied some kind of strip, which she then ripped off, taking most of the hair with it. It didn't all come off in one go, so she'd either have to quickly re-stick and re-rip, which didn't hurt anywhere near as much, or she'd go through the process again later on. It was weird to note the upper left side of my back stung less to wax than the lower right side. I genuinely don't know why. Anyway, I left with a smooth back. Not that I've been showing it off much, but that's not the point of the exercise. She did give me a couple of warnings. Don't have a shower for a couple of hours, and when I do, make it a cool or tepid one, and don't get sunburnt. I'd imagine going into a waxing session with sunburn would be equally as ill-advised. Having done it once, I suspect having it done again will be easier, but I don't know if that's something I'm going to do on a regular basis. That said, I'm glad I did it. And while I can't see it, I know it feels smooth to the touch from what I could reach. So I'm more than happy with it. I wasn't obviously the only person that was on this all-inclusive trip. I had my friend Laura. Hello. Laura was um, my co-conspirator on this journey. Um, you've been to an all-inclusive resort before, no, once, haven't you? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you, you, you did a cruise, though, didn't you? I did you? a cruise. Because I used to work for a cruise line. So, uh, pro tip, get yourself a job on a cruise line, just on land, and then you get yourself cheap-ass cruises. Nice. Um, okay, so... This was your first time in a proper all-inclusive resort then. I mean, how did you find it? Do you think it was all right? Yeah, it was really fun. Like we've we've discussed before, but I don't I think both of us enjoyed it more than we were expecting to. Mm. Um not that we weren't expecting to enjoy it, but we enjoyed it more. <laughs> um yeah, it wasn't as as boring as you would think. Um everything was better than I was expecting. Like I was expecting kind of crap food and bad drinks. And it was really good food. That was like the first thing we noticed. <laughs> it was like we got there, we dropped our bags off and we went to dinner. And we were both just, you know, oh my God, this is actually edible. And more than edible, it was tasty. 
Um, to the point that we absolutely ate too much each meal and in between meals. But hey ho, holiday, it's fine. Would, would you say it was the best thing about the all inclusive? Would you say that food mm. was the best? Well, food and drink. Food and drink. I mean, I liked all the palm trees. You can't go wrong with a myriad of palm trees. Um, I think if we'd been there a little bit later in the year, the pool would have been nicer. Mm-hmm. Like, I enjoyed the pool. I like to swim. I might be in my mid-30s, but you will still absolutely find me in a pool if it is ever there. Um, but it was a little chilly. Like, I was happy in it for about 10, 15 minutes. The pool bar. Wow. Loved that. <laughs> bucket list. Checked off. I've always, always wanted to go to a pool bar, and I've never managed to do it. And this place had a pool bar and, like, a swim-up bar. I was so happy <laughs> drinking my... Whatever I had, a daiquiri maybe. It was a cocktail. It was a cocktail, yeah. Of course it was a cocktail. That is not a moment for beer. (laughs) Um, But that was really, that was, Mm -hmm. I really liked that. (laughs) Um, The staff were all very, very friendly. Um, Yeah, yeah, I don't really have any complaints. The room was nice. I do, it's been two months and I still have a scar from a mosquito bite that I got. But that's not so much the resort's fault as no, just that, I, I, my I, immune system, I think, not. Well, I did also mention somewhere else in the pod that we had to keep the doors open because we couldn't work out how to work out the, the yeah, air con. Yeah. You know. I think the air con existed. The, uh, the bathroom had... Issues. Problems. <laughs> um, and we were getting yelled at about it. <laughs> oh, like, if you just put the towels up to the door, it won't leak. Ma'am, I don't think you understand how much water is coming out. I don't know who designs yeah. a shower with a very flat floor and no lip. <laughs> anyway. Um, it was a design fault. They did say it, was it was a, a design massive fault. design yeah. fault. Would you say that was the, the only bad thing that happened? The only yeah, that was the only genuine issue. Was the And it was, I mean, like, it was a genuine nuisance, to be honest. Like, it took up several minutes of each shower of having to... And by several minutes, we're talking, like, 10 to 15. This wasn't a tiny... Like, this was annoying... I'm a very, everything is fine. Even if things are, you know, I'm that meme, that dog meme with the, the fire <laughs> around me. I'm like, I will never come. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I went to the front desk pretty much after every shower being like, hello, it's me again. They I'm did. not the problem. It's not me to quote, my, to quote Taylor. But like, <laughs> I, yeah, it was, that was a genuine problem. They did resolve it though. They did, they? but yeah. it took, Two, it shouldn't have yeah. been there in the first mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. But that's my only qualm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, um. Yeah, it was great. Would you go again? That's the Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Dave. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Fabulous. Is there anything else you want to say? I mean, what was, what was nice about it is it's a it's a nice lazy man's holiday, but not in a derogatory lazy man's holiday way. It just it's nice to have everything there. It's nice that you can enter the gates and not leave them again for a few days. Um, you feel genuinely quite well rested. You feel like you had a proper holiday, even if it's just a few days. Um, yeah, you have all the food and the drinks on site. You've got the spa on site, which I went to, um, which was, you know, nice. It's a spa. Um, yeah. And then obviously, too, because we were in, like, we were, you know, we chose the location based on where it was. So we wanted to leave the resort as well. And go see, you know, the cool sights and sounds of Paphos, Cyprus. Um, so we saw these really amazing ancient Greek things. And and that was good, too. They had I know they had org- like tours mm-hmm. that you could do. Yeah, if you, yeah. We didn't do them, but they had the tours organized. So you could easily approach the staff. We just kind of did it on our own. 
and saw some just incredible, I mean, just incredible things. Um, and it was nice that you could do that as well. But if we hadn't left, it would still have been a really lovely holiday. Wouldn't have been our kind of, <laughs> of course, we're going to leave and go see yeah. the ancient tombs. But <laughs> if yeah. you if you don't want to, you absolutely wouldn't have to and you would have a great time. Yeah, it's, it's weird because we're both kind of independent backpackery types. This is the sort of holiday that we wouldn't choose to necessarily go on. Mm -mm. But, but it was... We're glad we did. Yes, it was really fun. <laughs> Fabulous. Is there anything else you want to say? I don't think there's anything else I've got to ask. I don't think so. I think it was just a... It was good. Have we talked about the price? Did you talk about the... I've, I've mentioned... Even, yeah, I've mentioned it elsewhere that we had a discussion about, well, actually, it's not that much expensive if you break down how much you're spending on a yeah, backpacker trip. It feels like... It mm. feels kind of like a decent amount of money, and especially because of what you're getting for mm. it. So we were assuming or that it would be quite expensive, but then we actually broke it down as compared to the individual costs that you do when you're not doing an all-inclusive, mm. and it's basically the same, yeah. which is wild considering what you're getting... Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, definitely a, it, thought it was more expensive. It's a four-star resort. Yeah, you know, you, you don't get this with a you know backpacker hostel in mm -mm. Malta. And you don't get anything with a backpacker hostel in Malta. <laughs> in Malta. <laughs> Regular listeners might know that I left him in Malta pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I did a podcast. I was on like, that. "Hi, Croydon, I missed you just so much." <laughs> It, it's saying something when Croydon becomes... Was the, genuinely the... happy when I went through the train yeah. from Gatwick. I was like, no, <laughs> hey, you, you're not Malta. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on that trip. That was really lovely. It's and I hope we can do it again sometime. I'm sure we can. David. <laughs> Now, one thing I ought to talk about, given who I am, is how it felt to visit an all-inclusive resort as someone who is clearly not cishet aloe. Non-binary, asexual, aromantic people aren't exactly common, especially not a resort like St George's, which caters for an older demographic of couples. And as we all know, that demographic isn't exactly the most accepting of people who vibe differently to the standard. Even my generation, Gen X, we might be much more accepting of, say, homosexuality than our parents, we, as a rule, are less likely to get concepts like non-binary, like asexuality, than those that came after us. We also have a very confusing cultural knowledge of transgender than millennials and below, but that's a separate subject. Because I'm not trans. Sort of. Anyway, as you do know, in terms of gender, I am very strongly non-binary. NB for short. This means that despite my body type, I don't consider myself strictly either male nor female. In fact, I tend not to really understand the idea of gender stereotypes. I get that they exist, I get that what they are, but it confuses me as to why. So one could argue, I'm actually agender. That is a debate for a different podcast. This is just backstory. Anyway, I'm having these internal dialogues in my head, so it made sense to use this trip as a way to see how I felt comfortable expressing my embiness. Is that a word? It is now. In a public and social environment. By which I mean, I do this already, but I was wondering where my boundaries lay, because being in an all-inclusive resort surrounded by a large number of people I don't know is very different than going to my local shop or pub. On the one hand, it was quite scary to put myself into an enclosed space surrounded by so many people who I feared might be disapproving. On the other, though, it's a well-regulated and protected space where I didn't feel anything bad would happen, precisely because it's an enclosed, well-regulated and protected space. For the record, I definitely feel comfortable in my presentation around Laura. Her only observation is that she wished I'd be more aware of colour and pattern matching. 
I'd love to know I don't know what she means, but, I mean, you've seen or heard my pictures. I am with clothing as I am with food. I wear and consume what I like. This is why my uncle used to leave the room when I ate sandwiches as a teenager, because apparently salt and vinegar crisps squashed into chocolate spread sandwiches is one of his hard limits. With both food and fashion, I consider there are no rules. Others disagree. Anyway, I very much give the impression I'm not the middle-aged male-bodied person I would normally appear to be. People of my demographic do not generally go out in public in dungarees, a crop top or a long skirt. I very much stand out, especially in an environment surrounded by my peers who are more rigid in presentation. Note, though, that even though it's a beach resort, beachwear also tends to be gendered. Cisgender middle-aged men generally do not wear crop tops, as I say. I mean, I clearly did in the sauna and the steam room, the same combo as I work for parkrun, but I argue that spas are an athletic type of activity. Even so, cisgender middle-aged men don't tend to wear crop tops and leggings for parkrun. This is one reason why I'm not a cisgender middle-aged man. In my head, I'm a 36-year-old woman. I'm clearly not a 36-year-old woman, but meh. But you may well wonder, how do people react when they see me? You may be unsurprised to know that, for the most part, I don't know, because I wasn't paying attention or noticing them. That said, we did have a couple of people come up to us and talk to us, though specifically because they were curious about my presentation. One of them did a drive-by. We were standing at one of the bars waiting to be served when someone came over, said, I think you're very brave, and then wandered off. I don't know what to make of that. Someone else sat with us for a few moments at another of the bars while we were waiting for a booking at one of the restaurants. She may not have been entirely sober, but she was very chatty. Amongst other things she said was, I'm not one to talk about people behind their backs, so I thought I'd come over and speak to you directly. This implies people were indeed talking about me, but didn't want to say anything. But since they never said anything, it didn't affect me. Sometimes knowledge is not power. I do know a couple of people weren't sure how to refer to me based on my presentation, because it came up in conversation with a couple of the bar staff. I should have worn my pronoun badge, really. Yes, I have a pronoun badge. Usually it was in my backpack. It's silvery shiny and it says they, them. I bought it from the queer bookshop near where I live in Southside Glasgow. And I took Laura there once and she bought a she, her patch in the same style. And I've never felt so seen, so understood, so allied with than I did at the moment she bought it. It's only a small thing, but it damn near made me cry with happiness and comfort. She didn't know that until she heard me say it just then. Thank you, Laura. I love you. Anyway... The impression I got from the conversations I had with the people I met in the resort was that, in general, everyone seemed to assume that I was trans rather than non-binary. This is understandable, given the majority of society still thinks in terms of a gender binary. If I'm clearly not masculine, even in a male body, I must therefore be a trans woman. I did not correct them. It just felt easier not to. Your mileage may vary as to whether this is just conflict avoidance on my part or whether it's an accurate representation of future now. That is not a discussion for this pod. What also affected the way people saw me was the fact that I wasn't travelling alone. Now, as you know, I tend to travel to places solo. A large number of reasons for this are due to my random nature and last-minute decision-making. In an environment where everything's just there in front of me and I don't have to move and I don't have to make decisions. I mean, on the one hand it sounds ideal, but on another, I always feel I'd get bored. It's not challenging, especially alone. I'd be just sat there and going, oh, um, what shall I do for the next six hours? It's like waiting for a bus. I'm very glad I had Laura there because it was just nice to chill and be with a friend so I had someone to chat with and it was well, it was like being in a pub with a friend, you know, no pressure, just, just relaxation, just doing nothing. 
I've never been on a cruise, but I imagine it'd be quite similar in vibe. Just potter around till the next destination, surrounded by people you don't know and probably wouldn't normally speak to unless you absolutely have to, either from boredom or from alcohol. Still, better than a coach tour, because at least you can rest properly and move around at will. And at least you can leave the resort when you like. You can't do that on a cruise because there's nowhere to leave two when you're out at sea. It would feel like a very swanky open prison. Where was I going for this? Oh yeah, solo travel to resorts. Some people thrive on it because it gives them a chance to meet people. Here's Kylie again. But even though what I'm alone, I'm of, I'm usually the odd one out, kind of. Um, there's often a lot of like couples and families, but it doesn't really bother me so much. I've kind of got used to it now that I'm alone. And you do still get to meet people. I find that, especially if you travel in like the shoulder or off season, you can get some really good all-inclusive deals. And when a package is so cheap, I then don't mind spending like money on like loads of day trips or even going and like eating lunch out places and they are a good place to meet other travellers especially if you get a hotel pickup where other people are going on the same tour you then get to spend the day with them and talk to them and then when you get back to the hotel you might often then spend time with them like around the pool or at a bar or even sometimes I've had dinner with people that I've met on tours before because another thing with I find with a lot of all-inclusive hotels is they are kind of on the outskirts of like bigger cities or out in like the middle of like my like remote areas. I quite like that because I like it because it's more peaceful and it's not quite as hectic as say like what a city hotel would be. But then I find that especially as a solo traveller, I often don't like going out alone at night by myself. So even though I'll go out on like a day tour or I'll take the bus like a nearby town, I don't then really want to be going around at night by myself in the dark for say dinner. So it's quite nice that with the all-inclusive packages, you know that you've got a dinner there provided for you at the hotel but then if you do meet someone and then you decide to like go out with a group like to a nearby restaurant you know the options there you can do that there's nothing stopping you from going out and eating like in another restaurant or somewhere else there's nothing stopping you from doing that but it's just nice to know that you have that food option like nearby. Ruth has been less keen on it in her experiences. One of the things I've always struggled with being a solo traveller is eating out on my own. It's one of the most intimidating things to do. On the first night, most of the waiters were quite bemused that I was travelling on my own and asked why. Was I lonely and why wasn't I there with my husband? I've gotten used to this over the years, being asked in certain countries, but didn't expect to be asked in a five-star hotel. And I think when you don't expect something, it's suddenly those old feelings of feeling intimidated and being made to feel awkward come back. I also didn't enjoy being asked to join the group activities each day, such as archery and darts. I must have come across quite grumpy. I did, though, partake in some pool activities, which was funny. I did some water aerobics and, and that was good fun. Ruth also had bad vibes the first time she ever went to an all-inclusive resort. Back in 2008, I ended up in a Sandals all-inclusive resort in Jamaica. It was three days of hell. The little hotel I had booked turned out to be overbooked when I arrived at the door, so I had to find another place to stay. I had to get into a taxi and trawl down a long strip of hotels to find a room available. All these hotels along the strip were all-inclusive, 
Some even housed up to 3,000 guests at a time. And after one and a half hours of being in a taxi and stopping multiple times along the way, I finally found a room at Sandals Resort, the 17th hotel along the Strip, which just goes to show how popular all-inclusives are. Sandals was perhaps the worst place I could have stayed in. It was an all-inclusive for honeymooners, and there's me, a single female traveller who shows up at the door. The room was lovely and the restaurant food good, but I posed a threat to many of the women there who were there with their new husbands. No one would talk to me. I was literally ignored wherever I went. It was a horrible experience and probably one of the loneliest moments in my life. Ruth's experiences are my fear, especially with my latent social anxiety and fear of being so obviously out of place that everyone sees me as the thing to laugh at, even if only behind my back, and why places like Mauritius are on my anti-bucket list. But that doesn't mean you have to be in a couple, or naturally exuberant and extroverted, to find the right balance at an all-inclusive resort. One of the things me and Laura discussed both at the time and afterwards was how all-inclusive resorts would actually be great places for people to go with with friends. Like, you don't need to do everything together. There's enough to keep you entertained if you want to do your own thing. But equally, it's a small enough environment for you to never be too far from each other if you wanted to meet up for a snack or a drink or whatever, or swap notes about your people watching or the vibe, and have some downtime together before doing your own thing again. And in addition, the resorts have plenty of twin-bedded rooms, not just double-bedded ones, so they definitely acknowledge that even in an adults-only resort environment, where you would expect a large proportion of older married couples, there are space for people like us. However, while we never had any issues around this from either the resort or the Jet 2 staff, the clientele appeared to be slightly confused, especially given my presentation. I mean, it was clear me and Laura weren't the standard couple that almost everyone else seems to be. And while it was clear that we weren't dating, people didn't seem to be able to classify us in any other box either. Like, it's clear we're not siblings, we don't look alike for one thing, and then it's clear from our speech that we certainly weren't brought up together. Cousins maybe, but not many cousins are close enough to go travelling together, so it wouldn't be people's first thought. One person suggested Laura might be my daughter, but bless him, he was only a wee nipper himself, relatively speaking. Though it does reflect well on Laura, given that I'm not yet looking pensionable. Whether I was her mother or her father was not specified. No one we spoke to openly put forward the thought that we were friends. Evidently, in their minds, the only people who go on holiday together are those related by blood or um, other bodily fluids. As an aromantic asexual envy, I find this problematic. As the barefoot backpacker, I find it amusing. Quite whether all of this vibe would be the same in a family resort or one more populated by the 20-something Geordie Shore type crowd, I don't know. But then I'd be unlikely to be in those sorts of places anyway. I mean, going to Ayanapa might be an interesting cultural experience, but if I ever did, I'd be likely one I'd do as a day trip and just observe, like I did in Benidorm. And probably not while wearing a crop top laden with daisies. So, to close off this part, I just wanted to give an overall vibe of how it felt to have been to an all-inclusive resort and how it felt to be there. It's certainly not something I'd ever had on my bucket list, although it was equally never on my anti-bucket list, suggesting that I'd either never ruled it out, or that it was so beyond the spectrum that I'd never thought to think about it. Now, one of the things that's always irked me about all-inclusive resorts was the cost. They always seemed to be quite expensive. But when me and Laura sat down to work out prices, we realised that it's actually much cheaper overall, relatively speaking, than you'd think. That everything is included means the initial price looks like a big number, but when you break it down in terms of flights, hotel costs, food and drink, etc., it's clear how the costs of travelling independently add up. Those who budget might be more aware of this than I am. 
Return flights, especially with hold luggage, then a decent hotel, and it doesn't take much extra spending on food and drink to make all-inclusive resorts genuinely affordable in comparison. Bear in mind, St George's Resort is rated four stars. Ruth said pretty much the same. I know many people do choose to go, especially if they have families with kids, as there's a large variety of food and activities. And especially when all alcoholic drinks and anything else is included, it's easier to budget up front, especially again if you have a family. So my fear had been that I'd be bored just sitting around doing nothing. But of course, you get out what you put in and there was enough to do and enough to drink for that not to be a problem. It helped that I was travelling with a good friend, as I say. I don't know if I'd have had the same experience as a solo traveller. But even so, I didn't feel rushed. I didn't feel pressured to do everything. And that's another big change to my normal travel style. It was just nice to sit, relax and switch off and do nothing. Ruth said there were some things she enjoyed about her stay, including, despite what she said earlier, the food. Well, some of it anyway. But there were things that I did enjoy about staying in an all-inclusive. The fact that everything was catered for. There was food 24-7. There were two huge pools, a nice beach area in a quiet cove away from Chirunk, which in itself is a small village and a former fishing village. There was also a spa and a Turkish bath area. The staff were friendly and the weather was good. There was structure to the day. I knew when my meals were going to be there. And talking of food, there was a huge range of dishes per meals. The salads in particular were fantastic. I arrived late afternoon and I was put on the top floor with great views of the two pools and the beach and the beautiful cove. There were mountains in the background. It was a very stunning area. My hotel room was clean with a well-stocked fridge and a balcony. And importantly for me, the hotel was nice and quiet. But with anything when you travel, there's also a downside. And what I didn't enjoy was the fact that it made me feel incredibly lazy staying in an all-inclusive. Normally, on arrival at a destination or a hotel, I'd drop my bags off and immediately go explore the area. But this time, I just couldn't be bothered. I'd definitely be tempted to do this again, that's for sure, which is not a sentence I thought I'd say. Amanda, however, has a different vibe. There were some good parts about it. We managed to get out and about a little bit, but the resort part, it was fine. Like there was nothing wrong with it. Uh, It was, you know, pretty homogenous and, you know, fairly bland. The food, I remember being pretty boring and very samey, you know, just like a buffet every meal. And I don't know, you know, it was fine. Um, And I remember trying to do the proper, you know, good resort thing and taking my book to the swimming pool for the day. And I love to read and I love to swim. Uh, but I did it for, I think, like a day and a half of this trip. And I was, I had, it. that was more than enough. I was like, well, how do these people just do this the whole day long? I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't understand. Not my kind of travel. Not really my thing. I mean, never say never. And I guess there are probably some kinds of all-inclusive resorts in certain destinations that might suit my needs better but this one was fine but not something I'm ready to do again anytime soon. Well that's about all for this part. Join me next time for another adventure beyond Beyond the the brochure. This one was quite clearly in the brochure but generally not brochures I tend to read anymore so I'm counting it. Am I really that out of touch or do I too default to 1986? Anyway, don't forget your toothbrush, 
And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye for now.